as we sang When Trials Come, that beautiful song written by Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, 130 in our hymns, Ancient and Modern. There really is a perfect segue from this song to our message tonight from that first verse. When trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near to fire a faith worth more than gold, and there His faithfulness is told, and there His faithfulness is told. That might have been inspired by Psalm 6, I don't know, but it certainly fits David's prayer and his passion for God's faithfulness and what God does in His faithfulness to David's own faith. With whatever King David is facing here in Psalm 6, and I tend to think because of the first three verses that it has something to do either with the trouble with his pursuers, certainly does to some extent, or else David may simply be dealing with his own sin. He nevertheless goes directly to God in order to receive manifold grace for his need. And I think that is the cry of all Christian hearts, that we ask God to give grace in our time of need. Alec Motier, who I've quoted before and who is a wonderful interpreter of the Psalms, says in his book, Psalms by the Day, a new devotional translation, in whatever form trouble comes, the hostility of others, circumstantial problems and tragedies, personal sorrows, its, tend- its tendency is to drive us inward, to make us retire hurt, urge us to find some corner in, win- in which to moan over our lot, marvel how unfair life is, chew the fat of our own misery. David is too practical to say, forget your problems. Neither his nor our difficulties are negligible or inconsequential. No, Alec Motier says, don't try to forget them, but rather face and describe them as these psalms do. The vague is so often more alarming than what is candidly and specifically faced but always outweigh the problems, hurts, sorrows, whatever, by the great truths about the Lord and by the practice of prayer and praise. Then he says this, wise words, the mind stocked with truth is the mind fortified. The mind stocked with truth is the mind fortified. Indeed, we must stock our minds full of truth so that they are fortified against anything that comes against us, or even as a way to avoid the sin that can so easily beset us. Maybe we don't have to choose between an attack on David by his enemies. The latter part of this psalm certainly speaks of that. Or 
David's own sin, which the first part of this psalm speaks about. Because each of these features of the psalm could be true at one and the same time. You have pursuers, and you're asking God to help you with them. You have those that are blaming you. You have those that are attacking you. You have those that are attempting to malign you and to abuse you. And sometimes when that happens in our lives, we have the tendency to sin in response, to have bitterness, to have anger, to have rancor in our hearts against those who would mistreat us. And so really either of these cases, the trouble of pursuers or the sin as a result of responding to such pursuers or both, it's, it's here. And we have in Psalm 6 what we might call at least in some ways, a lament psalm. The psalms are filled with these kind of lament songs. And you'll see them interspersed throughout all 150 of the psalms in Israel's songbook. And this is one of those, at least for part of it. It might also be called a penitential psalm because David in this uh, penitence of his heart is crying out to God for deliverance, for forgiveness, for help, for grace in his time of need. Let's read it together, shall we? Psalm 6, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Shemineth is a word that we don't really know what it means particularly. It's sort of been lost on us. It could mean an eighth And it might mean that this psalm is to be sung with an eight-stringed instrument. We don't know. But it is a psalm of David. And he says in his prayer, his song to the Lord, O Lord, Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. It appears here in Psalm 6 that we have four different stanzas of this hymn tune. The first is in verses 1, 2, and 3. The second, verses 4 and 5. The third, verses 6 and 7. And the fourth, verses 8, 9, and 10. So it works out for us to have a four-point outline for the evening. And the first 
is this in verses 1, 2, and 3. I need your saving grace, Yahweh. I need your saving grace. Listen to David's prayer. It's, it's quite vivid. It's quite impactful. And he cries out to the Lord, O Lord, and you see that capital L-O-R-D, that's the, the special name, we might say, of the Lord, Yahweh. O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Notice he says two things as we begin in parallel fashion. He says, O Lord, not in your anger rebuke me, not in your wrath discipline or chastise me. There's some parallelism there. Not your anger rebuke me. Not in your wrath, chastise me. And that's his first declaration in this psalm. Something's going on in David's heart. There's, there's some sin there. There's some sin that's lurking in the shadows of his heart. Or maybe out front, he's troubled. He's greatly troubled. You can tell that very obviously. And he wants God not to deal with him in this this chastisement that he's going through in anger or wrath. And this is what leads me to believe that David was dealing with some kind of sin here or possibly just his sin in general. Because these two Hebrew words for anger and wrath, they're very strong words. You might say something like this, hot anger and burning rage. And he says, Yahweh, don't don't deal with me with this hot anger or this burning rage. And even though David's asking Yahweh for the absence of anger and wrath, God, according to His own wisdom as our Heavenly Father, nevertheless opens us up when we need to be dealt with by not His wrathful anger, not His burning hot wrath against us, but by His love and care as our Heavenly Father. And it would be good for us to remind ourselves that as believers, like David here and like us in the New Covenant age, when as believers we think about God dealing with us, when we think about God chastising us, we need to understand that there are two ways that we should look at things. The way that David is explaining things here is the way that God used to deal with us. In a sense, before we came to Christ, God dealt with us in an abiding sense of His white-hot anger and His his wrathful rage against us because we were His enemies, right? You remember in the book of James where it says that if you are a friend of the world, you are a what to God? You're an enemy to God. And so every time a person is born into this world, and they live in this world without Christ, they're already, John 3 says, abiding under the wrath of God because they refuse to believe in the only name of the Son of God. They are under the abiding wrath of God. And so judicially, we have God as our judge. 
Hebrews 9.27 says, For it is appointed to man once to die, and then the what? The judgment. God, if we're outside of Christ, is our judge. And one day in His holy wrath, His righteous anger, He will come against everyone who knows not Christ. That's the judicial side of what, what David is referring to about a kind of God for whom wrath is abiding against unbelievers. And when David knows this, and when he sees this, and when he sees it worked out against the enemies of God, and when you are so close to that, and when you see that, especially as a man of war, and when you see God in a mighty way come and crush the enemies of Yahweh, he sees that so closely, and he says, I never want to be in that position. I don't want that from you, God. And for us, as believers in Christ, we have not this judicial God who pronounces a judgment against our sin and banishes us from his presence forever. We instead have a fatherly opportunity to see God in a much different way. But still yet, even with God as our father, he chastises us for his good. I want you to look in your Bibles at Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to show you this. This, of course, is actually a certain phrase in Hebrews 12 is taken directly from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And you'll see it as we look. This is a, this is a distinction I think we ought to regularly make so that people don't assume that when we're talking about God's chastisement of us, that we're talking about God's judicial punishment against our sin. That's not what we're talking about. Our judgment upon our sin took place where? At the cross. Now, we have chastisement from the Lord, but it's a loving, filial chastisement because He's our Heavenly Father, and we are His sons, and He deals with us in a completely different way. And sometimes Christians become confused at such a thing. They think that when God is chastising them, when God is giving them the rod of reproof, that it's some kind of judicial judgment upon them. And that's not so. But it is a chastisement nonetheless. It is God working in us and on us so that we might be corrected. Notice Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, speaking of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here it is, right out of Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the, love, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Do you know that's exactly what David is referencing here? When God is dealing with him regarding his own sin? He knows that there is a God of wrath against all unbelief. He's seen it. He's seen it in action. He sees what Yahweh does to those who flaunt themselves and their ungodliness in God's face. And he deals with them with a judicial judgment either now or at 
his time of choosing. And David says, I've seen that. I don't want that. And if you're going to chastise me as one of your sons, make it something like this, because I know my sin has to be dealt with, but I want you to discipline me, not in anger, not in wrath, but discipline me because you love me and because I'm your son as you chastise me. Now, what does the writer to Hebrews say is the purpose for all of this chastisement? Verse 7, it is for discipline, for chastisement, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, chastisement, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews says that if you are genuinely, legitimately a son of your father, he will, if he's a faithful father, and God is, he will discipline you as his son, your child. And if he does not, if you escape the rod of reproof from your father, then it only proves that you're an illegitimate child and not a true son. He says in verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Speaking of the Heavenly Father, the Father who created us, who, who is the Father of our spirits, our lives. For they, speaking of earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, our Heavenly Father, disciplines or chastises us for our what? For our good, that we may Share his holiness. You know, that's a perfect application of what David is saying here in Psalm 6. I don't want that white-hot anger, uh, that, that wrathful vengeance that you put on the wicked who don't know you. But if you're going to chastise me, even for my sin, and I acknowledge it before you, may it be so that I would share in your holiness. Verse 11, for the moment... All discipline, all chastisement seems painful rather than pleasant. And boy, isn't that true. But later, when it's done its work, when it's run its course, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is such a parallel that it's striking to me to Psalm 6. That's what David is saying here. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, even when I know I deserve your filial chastisement. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I'm pining. I'm I'm withering away. He's saying, in effect, I need your saving, sustaining grace because I'm wasting, I'm withering away. We don't know what this sin is. We don't know what combination of sins these are. We don't know if it's that which David is doing in responding to his accusers, to his pursuers. Could be his son Absalom. Could be those who want his life. It could be that David is crying out to God and it doesn't appear as though God's answering him. And then David becomes himself angry in response. We don't know if it's the sin of Bathsheba and the 
killing of Uriah. Uh, we don't know if it's the, the, the ungodly numbering, uh, taking the, the census that was foolish, to which David ultimately said, I agree, I shouldn't have done that. We don't know if it's some other sin in his life or sin in general, but what we know is that when he's talking to God, when he's praying to God, he says, be gracious to me. Would you give me grace in my time of need? I know none of you have ever asked that. None of you have ever said, I've got a need and I need grace. Have you? You have? Well, then David's your model. David's your example. David David is your uh, Christian cousin, as it were. Your believing voice that gives voice to your cry, to your, to your plea, to your request for help. And this is, this is why David is such a friend to us. I said earlier that this might very well be a penitential psalm. Look at Psalm 32. You probably know this psalm quite well. Psalm 32, there are several penitential psalms. Not everybody's agreed on exactly which ones, but I think everybody is generally agreed that Psalm 32 is. This is a mascal, a song of David. And he says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Is that familiar with uh, several of these early psalms here? Including Psalm 6. Yes, they are. For day and night, he says in verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. That sounds like chastisement, right? Discipline. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But notice what he does. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't try to hide it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And how does he respond? He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is, this is another penitential psalm. Psalm 51 is another. We won't take time to read it, but you know that's directly related to the sin of Bathsheba, the killing of Uriah. And David's such a, a, a friendly answer for us in the prayer of God's grace for our need because we can count on David to be honest we can count on David to be real and we can count on David 
to go to the source who is that God of grace. That's who David is. And you and I can relate to that. And that's why these psalms are so wonderful for us. How many of you have gone through the experience of dealing with some kind of sin in your life, something that you know is displeasing to the Lord, and you've sought Him out, and you've acknowledged like Psalm 32, I I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I didn't try to cover. And you saw that grace in your time of need. You, You received God's forgiving favor. You asked Him for forgiveness, and He granted it to you. Maybe you were like David, languishing. Maybe your body, Psalm 32, was wasting away. Maybe you even had physical implications of of covering your sin, at least for a time, and then you let it all out. And it was almost as though God was beginning to forgive you on a spiritual level and also heal you on a physical level. David admits, I'm, I'm languishing here in Psalm 6-2. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. And then notice what he says in verse 3. My soul is greatly troubled. He's in a bad way. He's, he's communicating the totality of his suffering. It's affecting all or every part of him. His physical life his spiritual life. And that's what sin does, right? He even begins here in verse 3 to to speak in an intensified way. My soul is greatly troubled. And he's contrasting the greatness of his trouble, the, the vexing of his soul, the languishing of his heart with God's silence. Notice what he says in that last phrase in verse 3, but you, O Lord, how long? He just, he just breaks off the sentence. This is an incomplete sentence in the Hebrew text. He says, but you, O Yahweh, how long? How long what, David? You, you might otherwise hear him say something in effect like this, how long, Lord, will you let me languish here? How, how long will this episode continue? Lord, deliver me. Help me. Come to my aid. And I thought you said, Lance, the outline point was, I need your saving grace, Yahweh. Yes, yes, I did say that. And look at verse 9. The Lord, Yahweh, has what? Heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. The the phrase, how long, dot, 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 is answered in verse 9. And remember, this is just one song. And we don't know how long it took for David to, to pen this psalm. Maybe it was a few hours. Maybe a few days. Possibly a few months. It could have been right in the vexing, languishing, withering attack of his own son Absalom, which could have been months and months. And the whole time he could be saying something like, How long, O Lord? 
I'm angry with those who are joining up with him. I can't believe my own son wants to take my life. I sired him. I helped bring his birth about in this world. How can he do this to me? And God seemingly waits in silence. Which I think means something like this. You can't demand grace from God. You can't demand it. You can ask for it. Plead for it. You can sincerely hope that God would visit you sooner rather than later. But God holds the key to the reception of grace and when you need it. Your responsibility as a Christian is to wait on the Lord, even waiting for grace, even with a, oh Lord, how long holding pattern, while God Himself sets the time of His answer for your reception of grace. Can't demand it. We know we don't deserve it. Grace by its own uh, definition is what? Undeserved favor. So if we don't deserve it, and if God withholds it, by His providence, through His wisdom, so that we are ready and receptive and matured and chastised to the place where our anger is curbed, where our sanctification is moving forward, where we're not at a standstill because we haven't learned yet the lesson. Isn't that the truth of Romans 8, 28, 29? And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. And what is His purpose? Verse 29 says, so that you and I might be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, God is in the control business of how and how long and how much you and I are progressively conformed to the image of His Son. And it's not in a moment, and it's not in a day, and it's not in a week, or a month, or a year. The painful process is for you and for me to trust God even as we are languishing, even as we are crying, even as we are asking for healing, even as our bones are troubled, even as God is chastising us because He's working in us the work of grace. But we can still ask, can't we? I need your grace, Yahweh. Number two. Number two. I count on your unfailing love, Yahweh. I count on your unfailing love. Look at verses 4 and 5. Notice the continuing passion in his heart. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? This is, this is intensification. 
David's certainly not finished with his request. He doesn't just utter a few lines that are caught for us in three verses. He continues on. He's continuing to go before the Lord. He continues to ask the Lord to give him grace. And he says three imperatives. Turn, or maybe even return. Return to me, Lord, in your forgiving love. Return to me. Deliver me. Save me. Three imperatives there. Turn, O Lord, to me. That's implied. Deliver me. Deliver my life. Deliver my soul. Save me. I mean, those are like um, staccato-like requests in the form of these imperatives as though I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to tell you what I'm thinking, and here it is. Return to me, Lord. Deliver me, Lord. Save me. I need you. And how does he do this? How does he count on God's unfailing love? Notice what he says. See that little word for in verse 5? This is how he's grounding his request. These three quick in succession kind of requests. Turn or return, deliver, save. For, because in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? What does he mean? What is he talking about? It's something like this. David is saying, if I'm dead, if I'm no longer among the living, then I'm not going to be a part of the congregational song, maybe even this song, that's praising you. I'm going to be gone. I won't be there. You'll have one less worshiper to praise you. And so I appeal to you that you forgive me, that you restore me, that you cover my sin, so that we can remember this moment and I will gladly go inside the congregation in the house of the Lord and I will give testimony that you have in fact returned to me, that you have delivered me, that you have saved me from my enemies and my own sinful response about those enemies and I will give testimony to what you've done and I'm not going to leave anything out. That's what I'm going to do. I want to go into the house of the Lord. I want to speak among the midst of the congregation. And I want to be one of those praise singers. Because you know what? If I die, there's no remembrance of you from my mouth, from my lips, what you've done, how you've delivered me, how you delivered your people, how Israel was restored. And in Sheol, the place of the dead, there's no praise being given to you there it's a matter of having one more worshiper in the congregation who can uniquely in my own experience praise you to the highest heaven and upon what basis does he say this notice what he says at the end of verse 4 save me and here's another 4 for the sake of 
of your steadfast love. I am appealing to your covenant faithfulness to me. You see that that word steadfast love there? It's one phrase in the Hebrew text, and it's that marvelous word, that rich word, hesed. Hesed. And it's variously translated in our Bibles. Some translate it covenant love, loyal love, loving kindness, faithfulness, etc. And it means this, God's unwavering faithfulness to His covenant promises to His people. You know what David's doing? He's not... He's not trying to to barter with God. He's not trying to manipulate God. He's not trying to to, uh, do anything in a manipulative way. Here's what he's doing. I make an appeal for you to cover my sin, to return to me in grace, to deliver me, to save me from my enemies and my own sin as a result of my wicked heart. I'm appealing to your unfailing love your covenant, your promises. And you know, throughout Old Testament history, you have all of these Bible characters, these personalities saying something similar. God, it's not as though I'm saying, again, manipulatively, I'm expecting you, I'm demanding of you. Remember, it's grace. Remember, it's undeserved favor. But they are nevertheless saying, this is, this is actually consistent with your character. This is... This is true about who you are. I'm basing my request upon your name, your character, your faithfulness. This is what you said you would promise to do. I count on your unfailing love, Yahweh. I need your love. I need your grace. It's my time of need. And you promised that you'd be faithful and loyal. Alan Ross, fine commentator on the Psalms, says it this way, The loyal love of the Lord is the reason he, David, should be delivered. Not simply because he has a covenant that is characterized by God's faithful love to his people, but because the covenant promises of the Lord's loyal love would fall into disrepute if he did not demonstrate them by delivering the sufferer. He's actually saying, does David, Lord, I don't want your character besmirched by the nations, by the pagans. I don't want your character, your unfailing love, your promises that you made to fall into such disrepute that the pagans are saying, who is this God? Come on. He said he was going to save you. He said he was going to deliver you. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and those pagan centurions were saying, come down off the cross. Save yourself. Isn't that what you said about yourself, that you're the king of the Jews? Hey, he can't even save himself. Aren't you glad he didn't choose to do that? Aren't you glad when in one of those moments of the unjust trial, He was being impugned and criticized and slandered. And his only response was, I could call down a legion of angels. But he withheld it. Because he knew he was following God's plan. You see, David isn't trying to one-up God. He's simply saying, 
I don't want your character to be besmirched to a watching world. I just want you to be true to who you said you are, and I believe you are. David has no other basis on which to make his appeal than God's faithful love, but he needs no other. God's faithful covenant love is sufficient. That is why it is at the heart of all his dealings with his people, even when they are sinful and need discipline. You see, we want a God who is faithful in all our good times. We, we want God to be faithful when everything's going well. And we're on easy street. It's not so easy when we want God to come with the rod so that we would be rightly reproved so that our character would be better shaped to the image of Christ that's not always when we want or need God or so it seems but we need him in both times in times of good in times of bad by the way David used that same word hesed look at Psalm 5 7 he says but I I myself the emphasis there but I I myself, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David makes an appeal to the very character of God and his promise of loyal, unfailing love to the redeemed as a basis of his prayer for deliverance. And you know what? You and I can do the same thing. You you and I can do something like this. Heavenly Father, on the basis of your love to your own Son, our Lord Jesus, my Savior, the one who took my place, I appeal to you through him who has granted me access in my prayers directly to you that you would come and give me grace in time of need. Will you come to me in this time of my need by and through Christ? Will you come to me, your covenant faithful son, your covenant faithful son. This is, this is the deliverance that we need, right? Going through trials, tests, challenges, sin, disobedience. It's been weighing heavily upon you. Your body might have even be taking some of the blows of your spirit and mind and You're not as physically robust as you otherwise would be going through those challenges. The story is told that during the Revolutionary War, a young officer in the British Army, before embarking for this country with his regiment, became engaged to a young lady in England. In one of the battles of the Revolution, the officer was badly wounded and lost a leg. He accordingly wrote to his affianced bride telling her how he was disfigured and maimed and so changed from what had been what she had last seen him and they had plighted their troth they had planned their wedding that he felt it is his duty to release her from all obligation to become his wife he'd been maimed he'd been torn asunder And he thought, I should release her from the obligation to marry me. 
The young lady wrote an answer no less noble than that which she had received from the young man. In this letter, she had disavowed all thought of refusing to carry out the engagement because of what had happened to her fiancé in battle and said that she was willing to marry him if there was enough of his body left to hold his soul. You know, when I read that, I thought, half of that is true. Here's the first half that's true. That's a picture of God's unfailing love. Seen in the personification of that woman who says, I said I would marry you. I, I have in my heart married you. And regardless of what's happened to your body, if there's enough of your body to hold your soul, I'm in. I'm committed. I will love you. Is that the unfailing love of God toward us? I committed to you. I will do this for you. That's my unfailing love. You know the part that I think probably isn't true? While God's loyal love is even greater, of course, than this woman's loyal love, and David is actually unlike the wounded soldier in that he actually bases his request for continued loyal love from God because of God's faithfulness to his promises. And he doesn't do what this wounded soldier did. I release you from any obligation. You know what David does? He does the opposite. Lord, I don't want to release you from your obligation. I need your grace. I need your love. I don't want to write you a letter and say, because of my maimed and torn sinful condition, I release you from all obligation to love me and to care for me and to be committed to me. No, he does the exact opposite. Lord, I'm actually coming to you and I'm saying, please fulfill your obligation. Please. If this is consistent with your character, the character of an unfailing, loving God who keeps His covenant promises, then please do it now. Please do it now. I I do acknowledge I am maimed and torn in sin, but I, I need you now. I need you to obligate yourself to your own promises if you would so do that for me by your grace. Let me ask you tonight, is that the kind of loyal love that you long for from your Heavenly Father? There's no greater love. It's greater than any love of a wounded soldier and a waiting fiancé because it's based on God's decree. I will set my love upon my elect and I will love them forever, even through their sin. And with my chastising hand, I will love them forever. Number three, I pour out my heart to you, Yahweh. I pour out my heart to you. David's not finished. Look at verses six and seven. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This thing's unrelenting. (laughs) 
Have you ever had a trial like that, a test? Have you ever dealt with your own sin and it just doesn't seem to be released from you? Or maybe the sin is released from you, but it's the consequences that are the problem. Yes, I sinned against the Lord, and it seems as though I'd like to put it a million miles from me, but I can't because I live in the reality of the consequences that I've created for myself, and they are daily reminders of my sin. You know, I've seen those from the counseling room in which a spouse has been unfaithful to their wife or to their husband. And it has dogged them, even though forgiveness has been sought, forgiveness has been granted. But the consequences of of that can reach for many days. And those consequences can be debilitating. There are even those who've gotten pregnant out of wedlock, had a child, a child that they love, that they care for. But in those quiet moments... They acknowledge the reality in their own heart, if not in the reminders from others that this was born out of sin, that this one to whom we love and cherish is still a reminder about my sin. And there are a thousand of other examples. And so, David says, I pour out my heart to you. Look at all the intensifications here. I'm weary with my moaning. I flood my bed with my tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes, because of my grief, they grow weak because of my foes. You know, not only does God love us due to His unfailing love for His own, but when we pray, we can pray with all our heart to Him, all our heart, even through the tears. And sometimes, beloved, it's going to take every ounce of physical and emotional energy to communicate to God regarding our desperate condition. And by the way, when you experience that, when you do that, could I hasten to encourage you, that is normal. It's normal. Look at David, King David leader of Israel. It's normal what he's doing. Believers are allowed to cry and to weep and to wail and to moan in their grief for the situation that they put themselves in. And it's in the inspired record of Psalm 6 that God wants us to come to him with every thought of the desperate needs we think we have. It's here. I'm not saying rejoice in it. I'm saying be honest about it. It's normal. The great John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and who languished in a prison for 12 years because he was preaching the gospel, his faith in Christ, he once said this, you that are called born of God, And Christians, if you be not criers, there is no spiritual life in you. (laughs) If you be born of God, you are crying ones. As soon as he has raised you out of the dark dungeon of sin, you cannot but cry to God. You know, the, the 
challenges of this life and the dealing with our sin and, and the pursuers who attack us, it is unrelenting, it seems. And when you and I experience these things and when we're just grappling, not with anybody else, but with our own sin and our own hearts and our own minds, and we know the disappointment and the grief and the failure of doing such a thing, sometimes there's no other recourse but to cry, to wail, to weep, to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when you cry out to God. Here's a psalm that that gives you, in a sense, license to do so. David's effusive tears are there so that they can be captured in God's bottle and God could sprinkle His grace all over those tears. It's not a dishonor to God to to be normal. Now, what you need to be careful of is that very last phrase of verse 7, it grows weak because of all my foes. So God, wipe them out. Debilitate them. Destroy them. Denounce them. And in fact, give me a sword and I'll do it myself. No, we know, Romans 12, other passages. We're not to retaliate and be our own vigilante force. We're to trust God. We're to pray for those enemies who malign us, right? You know what David is saying, at least here? I'll do everything you tell me. I'll do everything you say. But I do tell you about my being weak because of all my foes. And if you tell me, and of course in that economy, if God had told David specifically through Nathan or some other means, then God would have been commanding him to do something. For us, here's our response. I know I have foes. I know I have enemies. I see the enemies of God. I see the encroaching nature of Islam in our world. I see all of this. And if you want me to do something, I shall. But here's what I must do. Here's what I know I can do. Pray for my enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek if you must. But trust God and allow God and leave room for the wrath of God so that he can exert his vengeance in his time and for his purpose. Leave room for the wrath of God, the Bible says. But in your leaving room for his wrath to come upon the ungodly, plead with God through your tears that his hallowed name would reign supreme throughout all the earth. Let God be God. Let Him deal with it. Number four and finally, I know you answer my prayer, Yahweh. I know you answer my prayer. I need your saving grace. I count on your unfailing love. I pour out my heart to you and I know you answer my prayer. Look at what he says in verses 8, 9, and 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Praise God. The Lord has heard my plea. Praise God. The Lord accepts my prayer. Maybe he says this three times because he'd said earlier, turn, deliver, save. And now he's saying, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. 
It even speaks in the present perfect verbal aspect of these Hebrew terms. The present perfect, verse 9, present perfect, first part of verse 9, verse 8, and then first part of verse 9, and then the progressive perfect, latter part of verse 10. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. It's as sure as when Jesus himself said, depart from me, you workers of evil. It's as sure as that. It's as sure as if Jesus was doing it himself. David's that confident. He's that sure. He's that assured of God's answer. You know, and when someone says, but wait a minute. If David is saying that he's as sure and assured that God is going to deal with the wicked, that he says, the Lord's heard me, the Lord's going to answer my plea, the Lord's accepting my prayer, then David is saying he is going to get those guys. But wait a minute. I thought you said in verses 1, 2, and 3 that David was actually dealing with his own sin. Well, here's the answer, and it's repeated several times in the Bible, like, for instance, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk comes to God, and he indicts God, as it were, and says, wait a minute, I mean, here's our people, and I know that they've been involved in sin, and I know they've brought to some extent these things upon their life, but you're using a wicked nation against your own people. How fair is that, God? And doesn't God say, wait a minute, Isn't my sovereign prerogative to use whatever means at my disposal, even using a wicked people to judge my people? Because guess what? After I use them as my own instruments, I will also judge these wicked people. I have the right to do so. And what David is saying is consistent. I know I've got my sin. I know I've been angry and vicious about my response to them. I know my sin is ever before me. I know I've got a wrong attitude. I know I have bitterness in my heart. But I also know this. After you use these wicked people, including possibly my own son against me, you'll deal with them in your time. You're going to deal with your people through wicked people and inevitably deal with those wicked people who will get their just desserts. That's good theology. And that's what David's saying. In fact, notice how he ends. Verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And I can't help but see the irony. They're going to be greatly troubled Because he says about himself in verse 2, Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. And now my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame. When? When? In a moment. You know what that means? In the swift twinkling of an eye. When those wicked people who are all about doing their wickedness to David, they're going to get their comeuppance. They're going to get their judgment. And it's going to be quick. And it's going to be massive. And it's going to be clear who's done it. And isn't the history of those who are dealing with Israel strewn all over the landscape of human history because 
God ultimately uh, dealt with them, every single one of them? Yes, every single one of them. So, I ask you, as we close tonight, what does prayer really do? What does this prayer of grace really do? Come on, does it really work? Is it really effective? What does it really do for us? Dale Ralph Davis, as we close, says this. Prayer doesn't change things, but prayer lays hold of God who changes things and who in prayer changes you. And sometimes in the midst of it all, He gives you the assurance that your plea has been granted. There will be many of the Lord's flock post-David, He says, who also come with the sound of their weeping and will need the assurance that God will see their tears. And why shouldn't He? Why shouldn't He see their tears? For He has given them a Savior who in the days of His flesh offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears, Hebrews 5.7. And He was heard. And so shall you and I be heard. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for hearing us, for loving us even through our tears, even the tears that we weep because of our own sin. And maybe our wrong attitudes and our sinful vexations at those who pursue us and malign us and accuse us, mistreat us. Thank you that Psalm 6 is here for us. Thank you for those to whom even today through communication I was able to speak to them and seek to have them meditate on Psalm 6 for it's the very thing that one could assume they need. We need your grace in our time of need. Thank you for giving it to us. For Jesus' sake.